Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're about to open your word. It's a word that can increase our aliveness. It can enhance our wellness in Christ. It's the powerful word of God. Not a thing we read this morning, not a thing we say about what we read is trivial or can be easily laid aside. It's the word and the truth of God. Bring life and health to each of us, for I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deploying hope in the realities of life. Isn't that a great place to let your hope go to work? In the realities of life. The very things that we're experiencing the things that aren't usually under our control, the things that sometimes we would wish to change if we could, but we can't, so there they are. And into those realities of life, God would have us deploy, put to work, the very hope that he has stirred in our hearts. That's what this series of messages is about, deploying hopes, specific hopes, that God has given to us in his word into the various circumstances of life. So our format, now this is the third week we've been in this series, our format is the same every week as far as how we start. It goes like this. First, my hope discovered. What's the hope we're focusing on this week? Which one? Which hope would God have us deploy put the work in our life. And, and so as we've said before, these are, these are personal. When we put my there, that's when you say them, you say the word my. When I say it, I say the word my. These are personal hopes that God would give by his spirit to every single child of God. So here we go. My hope discovered today. It's found in Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet are. They will be tormented, how long? Forever. Is that a good deal? Are you glad that God is going to judge the devil? He is not a human being. He was not made in the image of God. He is not one that Jesus died for. He was a celestial being made in the glory of the celestial kingdom, and he rebelled against our God for which there is no coming back, no forgiveness. And it will take quite a long time until this verse is fulfilled, but it is coming. It is coming. And that revelation that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, and they together will be tormented forever. That revelation is intended to generate hope, a very particular hope in our hearts. And so here's how I would define my hope this morning growing out of that scripture. Phrase it this way. There is coming a day when Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire. He will be forever removed from the world of men. Praise God. Forever removed from the world of men. 
you and I, even when we're glorified beings, been changed to be like Christ, we are in the eternal realm living with God, we will not, even in that state, have to contend with the devil. Now, in that state, we're like Jesus Christ himself. There's no more sin nature. There's no more to drag us down just naturally. And you'd say, well, you know, in that state, I could handle him just fine. Well, heaven's not like that. It's no longer a continual battle between good and evil. It's no longer a waiting and saying, how long, Father, until you vindicate all of this? There's coming a day, and that devil will be put away, put away from the world of men entirely. Now, that's how I define the hope of the morning. There's coming a day. There's coming a day. When that is true, we can put our hopes in that and realize in that day God will show himself mighty and victorious and righteous and just and all those things and will be even more caught up in the greatness of our God. That's my hope to find. I'm expecting that. But now, how is that hope that has not been fulfilled yet or brought into being yet helpful in my life? How can I, how can we put that particular hope to work? Well, here's my hope deployed. How we might release this hope into our lives. So I phrase it this way, since my hope, and by the way, this is not a hope so hope, right? This is the hope the Bible says is like an anchor. It is so secure that it, it keeps us centered it keeps us stabilized. It's hope that is absolutely given to us by God. Now, since my hope is that Satan will one day be completely removed from the world of men, that's what the Bible says will happen, since that's true, and since that's a hope of mine, I will do everything I can to remove his influence from my life right now. I can't throw him into the bottomless pit. I can't throw him into the lake of fire. But I believe I can remove, you can remove his influence from your life right now. Is that a good thing? How many of you believe that's possible? Now, I won't ask how many of you have experienced it to this point, though there probably have been moments, right? There's been moments, you know, that something has come into your mind, into your heart, some circumstances have arisen, and you have felt the influence of the evil one saying, why don't you do this, why don't you do that, why don't you tell them just how, and you have resisted it. You have said, no, God's word tells me something differently, and you stand on God's word, and you, you remove his influence, his presence might be in the area, but his influence, he's having none over you. Now, I want to do everything I can, since God someday is going to remove him entirely. As a child of God, I want to do everything I can to remove his influence from my life right now. And I trust you say the very same thing. Now, if we're going to do this, this morning, I'm sharing with you two key necessities. Two things are absolutely imperative. They're necessary things. 
if we're going to be successful in deploying this particular hope of removing the very influence of Satan from our lives, two things we've got to have as part of the equation. Number one, we must understand his schemes. That is, his way, the way he operates. The Bible tells us a lot about Satan. Tells us a lot about the way he operates. But if we don't read the Bible, if we don't know those things, the devil can come up and, and actually come against us and we don't even recognize it's him. And so if we don't recognize it's him, <laughs> he's going to have great influence over us, especially if his ideas seem to make sense or if his ideas seem to be right in line with our own fallen human flesh where we say, boy, I ought to just... And, and there's this other thought that says, boy, you sure should. You sure should. Now it's two against one. You don't even recognize that was the voice of the devil. That's the voice of the evil one. So we've got to understand how he functions, his schemes. You see, Satan has been given great liberty to roam about on the earth <clears throat> and to carry out <clears throat> his agenda of rebellion. God created man and woman in the image of God. He gave them the ability to follow him perfectly, and he gave them the ability to rebel against him. And way back in the beginning, they chose to rebel and to go their own way and to to line out the way they would live their lives as opposed to the way God says they should live it. And all human beings have been born with a rebellious spirit. The devil himself rebelled against the Most High before man was ever created, and he led <clears throat> one-third of the glorious angelic host into that rebellion with him. And you could say there's been a dispute, there's been a conflict between God and the devil ever since. The devil always believes he's more powerful than he is. Why, he started out by saying, I will be like the Most High. I will be like him. And that's what got him thrown out of heaven. A rebellious spirit by a created being. And ever since man was created, and God gave man a freedom of sorts, and the devil was able to work his way through Eve's mind and heart, and then through Adam's, and they rebelled against God, <clears throat> I can just sense Satan saying to God himself, and I can do that to every single human being you allow to live on this earth. I can win them all over. They are all at heart rebellious creatures. And so God gave Satan great liberty all these thousands of years to roam about on the earth, to carry out his uh, agenda of rebellion. He seeks continually to turn men against God. And as a result, frequently to turn men against men creating chaos in God's created order is his desire. And so, frequently he serves as a test agent for the people of God. 
will they listen to his voice or they obey what God has said? And Satan becomes that testing agent. And many there have been and still are in our day today, we know who failed that test. There have been times when probably every one of us in this room has failed that test as an individual moment. We're not completely rebellious toward God. We love God. He's saved us. We've confessed that we're rebellious. We've confessed that we're sinners. We've pleaded with God for mercy and and claimed his son Jesus as our payment for our sin. And we know there are times when, when we fail the test. We rebel against what God says, what God desires, what God has made clear. And we do our own thing. And Satan says, see, see. The Bible even tells us he's, he accuses us in heaven. See, see. We can fall under his influence. And when we do so, we rebel against God. We sin in some way. And usually we experience much misery in our lives. And Satan rejoices. That's his very desire. To bring misery, to bring defeat, to bring rebellion to the very beings that God has created and that even by his Holy Spirit that he has recreated into born-again children of God. They too. He rejoices when they, when we, fail and fall in some way. And he's successful way too often. Sometimes because we don't even know it's him. We don't even know what we're up against. So the question, how does he operate? How does he seek to influence and even control mankind? And let me give you a warning as we begin this morning. We may identify some of these schemes of Satan. We may identify the way that he works. And and without us anticipating it, we might be sitting here and say, I've fallen for that. We might even find ourselves saying, I'm living in the reality of that. And I thought I was just being smart. Insightful. Somebody that I respect said that to me, and I believed it for years. And never known that we've fallen under the spell, the influence of Satan himself in one of these ways that we talk about this morning. So here we go. We'll just go through them quickly. There's quite a list. There's going to be plenty of things for you to think about this week and discuss together, share with your children, and read the fuller scriptures where we are. But here we go right now. How does Satan seek to influence and even control mankind? Number one thing I share, he misrepresents and manipulates God's word. Satan, I have no doubt, knows the word of God better than any of us in this room. He's a celestial being. He has intelligence that is is beyond our ability to to take in. And he's had thousands of years to review everything God has said. And one of the ways to get God's people messed up is to use God's word against them. 
because they honor God's word. They love God's word. And so he misrepresents it. And he manipulates it to bring about a result that the word of God never intended, but as he influences people through it, they wind up doing stuff that they think has grown right out of some teaching of scripture. That's pretty tricky. And he's successful in that. That was the form he first used when he got the first human being to rebel against God. Eve in the garden, Genesis 3.1, we have right there just this little phrase, did God really say? Have you ever had a Christian or anybody say, does the Bible really say? And then they finish the statement somehow and you say, I don't know if the Bible says that or not. Uh, I don't know if the Bible, uh, I'm not sure. Well, Satan came to Eve, and here's the fuller statement. Did God really say that you can't eat the fruit of any tree in this garden? Wow. What a terrible God that would be. Put all these wonderful fruits in front of you that will keep you alive forever. Even the tree of life is right here. Did God really say that you're going to live in this garden, but you can't eat any of that fruit? My goodness. Well, Eve came to God's defense. No, 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 no. God, God just said we can't eat of that tree. That went over there. He called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't, can't eat of that one. We need all the others for sure. I don't know if she and Adam had already tasted all of the others. I don't know how much time had gone by, but just, just that one. And then Satan says, ha, ha, figures. Figures, he'd tell you not to eat of that one. That's the best one in the whole garden. That will open your eyes and make you like God himself. Now, God claims he made you in his own image. But he doesn't really want you to actually be like him, be as smart as him, understand things. So he's withheld this fruit that will fill your mind with knowledge, that'll take you beyond anything you might otherwise ever know. And so therefore, therefore, if God actually even wants you to become all that you can be, I'd say, eat it. And Eve believed him, that it would improve her life. And she gave some to her husband. He misrepresented he started out by saying something that wasn't true. Did God really say you can't eat any? Well, that gets you sort of thinking that God's withholding from you. And then Eve clarifies, but now in the back of her mind, it's still like, yeah, but he's withholding from us. And before you know it, you could even take of that fruit and think to yourself, in the long run, I'm sure God would say it's okay. Once God sees what it does for us and how it makes us wise and, and how good the taste is, I, I'm sure he'll, he'll say, well, that's fine. Have you ever talked yourself around some scriptural directive where you wind up even disobeying the Bible while you think uh, that it's okay? Somehow some thoughts have come into your mind that would say it's okay. He misrepresents the scripture and, and gets us dealing with scripture in a way that, uh, that pretty soon we're on pretty slippery soil. 
Here's one, and I'll just use one example here today because we have to hurry through, but here's one example that Satan's gotten a lot of mileage out of in the last 30 or 40 years. He's gotten so much mileage out of this that he doesn't even have to bring it up anymore because it's accepted as just being truth. But some years ago, we could imagine Satan approaching some young man or some young woman raised in a Christian home, knows the word of God, and he might have raised this question. Did God really say that you can never experience sexual pleasure with someone? Did God really say that? He made you as human beings capable of uh, relating to one another, but did he really say you can never experience any kind of relationship like that with anybody, ever? Well, the Christian that he would talk to would say, heavens no, heavens no. He only said that such intimacy should be experienced within the security of a marriage commitment. Only within marriage should that kind of relationship between a man and a woman be experienced. No, he didn't say we can never. Ah. Ah, Satan responds back. That's because God knows that a sexual relationship is completely normal and natural. And that he would deprive you of that experience. Two consenting human beings who care about each other is all that is required. Hmm. That misrepresentation of Scripture and the way that Satan would suggest things ought to be has been so accepted in our world and in this Christian country that you practically cannot find anyone on their marriage day who is inexperienced, who is still a virgin. You can hardly find one. And it's certainly not, of course, the norm, as at one time was. Satan has influenced that teaching of Scripture, misrepresented it, talked about what really God, how God has made us and what God would want for us until by the time we're done, we have Christian young people engaging in sexual relationships outside of marriage and feeling God's pleasure in their mind. That's how Satan works. That's how Satan works. Professing Christians by the millions have accepted the logic of that argument. And as a result, they violate and they damage their relationship with God. And ultimately, they damage and violate their relationship with one another. And it never works out the way God planned for a marriage to be. Has God really said? 
Now, Satan doesn't usually just speak right out to us. He speaks those words through somebody that he's already deeply influenced. And they say things like that. How about this one? When he was talking to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, well, Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was going to go out and minister for three and a half years and basically at the end say, I am the Messiah God has promised. John would say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Satan says, if you are, if you are, don't you think you ought to prove it? Wouldn't it help your ministry if you would just prove it? Wouldn't everybody just bow down and accept you and you wouldn't have to go through all this rejection? Probably you wouldn't ever have to be crucified. Just do something so dramatic that they would have to say, that man's the son of God. And at least they'd have to say, and the heavenly father's hand is upon him and we better listen to him. Wouldn't that be a great way to start off your ministry, Jesus? So if you are the son of God, he took him up to the highest point in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. He said, just cast yourself down. You know, what is it? Maybe a hundred feet, whatever. The Bible says that he will give, God will give his angels charge over you lest you even dash your foot against a stone. You know your father, if you are the son of God, is committed to protecting you. And why don't we get a crowd down there you're right up here on the pinnacle of the temple and just dive off. And when your heavenly father just lets you gently float to the ground, unharmed, you'll be acknowledged as who you are. And that's the way you can begin this ministry. That's manipulating the word of God. That's using it, applying it in a way that God would have never intended. And Jesus didn't fall for it. But many of us do. Satan can draw our attention to some supposed promise in the Bible and just says, if you really are a son of God, if you really are a man of faith, a woman of faith, you just claim that. You claim it, you believe it, you tell everybody it's going to happen because your faith God has to honor. So you demonstrate you're the real deal. You demonstrate that Whatever the need might be, might require a miracle, but you're up to that. Your God is up to that. You just demonstrate that you really are a child of God filled with power and authority. There have been lives ruined over people trying to be that. There have been churches that have been destroyed over making something like that their central doctrine. Find a promise in God's word and just claim it and claim it and, and say it must happen. And if it doesn't happen, then what? Something's wrong with your faith because there can't be anything wrong with God. And people become wounded through that kind of misuse, manipulating the word of God. And usually it's somebody standing on a platform doing that. And the people then suffer. And Satan rejoices. Put God to the test. Jesus didn't fall for that line of thinking, and, and we shouldn't either. Well, here's the second thing. Not only does Satan 
manipulate and misrepresent God's word. He challenges God's revealed plans. And I would just move quickly through here, but here's a story you know. After Jesus had been with the disciples almost three years, and it's near the end of his ministry, and they're beginning to recognize, in fact, Peter has already confessed him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus now reveals something to Peter and to the others that, that couldn't be revealed until that time, even though they've probably been wondering for months and years what John the Baptist meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How's that going to happen? Well, at this point, Jesus says to them, he begins to reveal what's going to happen to him. The chief priests and the scribes, they're going to arrest him. They're going to mistreat him. And ultimately, they are going to crucify him. He will be put to death. Horrible thought. Peter, who loved the Lord greatly. Peter, who had just confessed he is the Son of God, and Jesus had said, well done, well done. Peter says, I got another thought. And he takes Jesus aside. And basically says, I don't know where you got an idea like that, but I will never let that happen to you. That must not happen to you. You're not going to be killed by anybody. You're going to be recognized as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the nation's going to just come after you and will be caught up in your goodness and grace, just like we are. That, what you just said, will never happen. We find that recorded in Matthew chapter 16. Just says here, (laughs) Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, this crucifixion shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to him and he said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, that's the thing that Satan would say to me. That's the way Satan would want to derail me from the plan my father sent me to fulfill. That's what Satan does. There's a plan of God. There's a way of God. We read the Bible and discover the will of God in many, many areas of our lives. And then Satan says, not so, not so. Or one of his teachers or those who represent him or who are influenced by him say, not so, not so. That Bible's pretty old. Cultures change. People have changed. you got to understand, this is a new world. So whatever it says in there doesn't have to be accepted. God's word is pretty cut and dried. And sometimes it tells you to do things that you'd rather not do or that you think might be difficult to do, or that other people might make fun of you for doing, or you might lose out on something if you do do them, and the thought goes through your mind, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is a different world I'm living in. Surely God would not want me to be unhappy or in any way unfulfilled. And so therefore... If it's going to make me happy, God would be for it. If it's going to fulfill me in some way, God would be for it, we say. And we have no idea that we're just parroting Satan's words right after him. You see, Satan has gotten even born-again Christians, even professing churches of people 
to just lay aside big chunks of the Bible in favor of their own ideas and desires. So he challenges God's revealed plans. Just because it's in the Bible, you don't have to bow to it, so he says. Next thing, he afflicts God's people when he's permitted to. We have the story in the Old Testament of Job. We have the story in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, Job says, or the Lord said to Satan, we have here, very well then, he, Job, is in your hands. So Satan afflicted Job with painful sores. This isn't really a common thing, but it can happen. Where God allows Satan to actually distress human beings physically as a test of their faith. The Apostle Paul said, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I hope none of us have gone through anything like that. And if it is from Satan, we would never know it. Satan doesn't say, this is from me. The Holy Spirit never says, this is from the devil himself. No, we just know we're in a situation, physical or emotional or financial, or in some way that is, is just risen up in a way that it's causing us great distress, great trouble. And we, we might be tempted to think, has God forsaken me? Does it make sense to still believe in a God who would let me go through something like this? Well, let me tell you, if it's from Satan, it's because God has permitted it. And if God has permitted it, it's because God has identified you as a champion. Somewhere on the level with Job himself, who, who God knew that Job was going to pass this test. God wasn't there. Well, let's see what happens here. He knew Job's faithfulness. He knew Job's righteousness. And if Satan is ever permitted to touch your life or my life, it's because God knows we're going to come through like gold. And so why not just pretend they're all from him? <laughs> because when you continue to trust God in the midst of trouble, it pleases God no end. Faith honors him. Faith that, that my life is in his hands. Faith that his will is being worked out in my life. <clears throat> Faith that even this circumstance is not beyond God's ability to transform it and to use it. And so therefore, like Job, even if he slays me, I will still trust him. Hey, if he slays me, I'm in heaven especially if I'm in a bad time, that wouldn't be a, a, a bad thing. You see? But, but there is that dynamic that it's possible. It's possible that, that God might from time to time allow Satan to, to pick on one of his choice people, one of his champions, one that really has had a pretty blessed life, we would say. And all of a sudden things turn around. And God says, you can touch him. We will let this test go on. And to the glory of God, the believer just comes forth through that time like gold, like a champion that God knows he is.
So we, we go on here just a little bit. Satan, he blatantly lies and leads others to lie. John, Jesus said in John 8, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 11, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. There are those who claim to belong to Christ who do not belong to Christ at all. And they know they don't. They are masquerading. They are taking advantage of people. They know they do not have a relationship with God that they act like they have. And they lead people astray. And they take advantage of them in various ways. We of all people today should be sensitized to the presence of untruth. We are bombarded by it every single day. I can't tell you how many hours I have not watched television. It's almost a complete flip-flop from years ago where you always had the TV on in the house, you're catching up with whatever's going on. It's amazing how little our TV is on in our house. Because almost everybody on there is a liar. Almost everybody on there has a pitch to make and they will manipulate truth as well as Satan can manipulate the word of God to just get their, get their point across. Liars, liars. Satan is a liar and he fills the mouth of liars. You see, everything... Everything, almost, that we hear today, even if there's a little truth wrapped up in what's being said, the person speaking is using that truth to lead to a conclusion that is probably not completely true or trustworthy or God-honoring. Satan is the enemy of truth. Truth is a great danger to him. Truth always leads people back toward Christ who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Lies, lies, and more lies are Satan's stock in trade, and he fills men's mouth with them. Last thing on his uh, schemes, he preys upon the vulnerable. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Who are the people that are able, ready to be devoured? Somebody powerful and strong is not ready to be devoured. The ones that Satan is looking for, that any lion would be looking for in the wild, is the weakened one those weakened by life, those who've gotten lax in their Christian life, those who have been tested and have been overcome. These are the ones the lion would find ready to be devoured, to be completely taken out of the game. So there's a condition that we never want to find ourselves in. 
You never want to look in the mirror in the morning and say, you know, I'm ready to be devoured. Yeah, I don't want to get to that spot. Well, obviously, understanding Satan's schemes, we've discussed a number of them, knowing the way he operates is not enough just to know how he goes about it. It's necessary that we do, but secondly, we must understand our strategies, the way we overcome. How do we get his influence out of our life? How do we recognize, when we do recognize something's going on, how do we just quell it? How do we strengthen ourselves? Well, three things, three-part strategy, and I'll mention them quickly, but it's a package deal. All three of these work together. Number one, submit yourself to your heavenly Father. James says, 4-7, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I say many, many Sunday mornings, when we submit ourselves to God, we are resisting the devil. They're not to, well, I submitted myself to God, but I forgot to resist the devil. No, if you submit yourself to God, you are in a state of resistance toward the one who is opposed to God. The one who says, don't bow before God. Be your own God. Make your own way. So submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He'll want nothing to do with you. Now, in light of last week's message, I remind us to rely upon worship and to rely upon the fellowship with God that that worship generates. Breathe in the aroma of heaven and allow it to fill your lungs. Don't leave any room for the smoke-filled air of this fallen world. Live with what I could call a garden of prayer mindset. All day long, whatever the situation might be, you just have yourself mentally and spiritually right here, (laughs) right here, where you're just saying, Lord, in this moment, I'm washing my mind down of everything else. I'm just going to listen to the words of this prayer. I'm going to affirm them. I'm going to say, that's who I am. Heavenly Father, I'm kneeling. I'm bowing. You are my God. I am yours. And and just live in, in that spirit as much as you can all the time. A garden of prayer mindset. Always see yourself laying everything at your Father's feet, believing that His will is being worked out in all of them and that His worked out will is bringing something good to you. That spirit of submission causes Satan to turn tail and run. I don't have a Bible verse for that. But it does say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So I tell you, there are places Satan doesn't want to be. He's a created being. He's not God. He can only be in one place at one time. Why would he want to hang out right here, right now with us? Would there be any good reason for him to put Sun Life Community Church at 10 o'clock to 11.30 on Sunday morning where he wants to be? Not really, I don't think. He might want to hang out in your or my living room if it's a bad day and we're kind of bummed out. He says, I've heard through the grapevine there's a little bit of problem over there. I I might just drop by and, and see if I can influence that a little bit. But here, here we're pretty well squared away. At least what we're saying. 
And, and if what we're saying is kind of finding root in our heart, then he will flee. A spirit of submission causes Satan to turn tail and run and to abandon any plan he had of derailing you during your current difficulty. People kneeling here bringing their difficulties to the Father are putting them in the Father's hands, trusting the Father, and they're not open to any suggestions the devil has about how they might deal with their difficulties. Such submission all by itself begins to remove his influence from you. Here's part two. Put on the whole armor of God. Paul says in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God so you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. Here's an activity you could do this afternoon. Review the schemes that I mentioned this morning. Put it on a piece of paper. And then list all the pieces of the armor of God and say, which one of these pieces would help with this particular scheme? And if you need help remembering kind of like how that armor of God works, you get out your old nudges and hugs book and look at book three and where over seven or eight days we go through individually the pieces, each piece of armor and how it's applied and how it's put on and how it protects us and then say to yourself, this is pretty good stuff. This is pretty good stuff. How do I want to eliminate his influence in my life? Clothe yourself from head to toe with the armor of God. The helmet of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth. The battle shoes of the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. The sword of the spirit. And the one we added, the calm link of prayer. And all these things pray. Put it on. Never take it off. Satan will take one look at you and go the other way. I guarantee he cannot even begin to influence one who is so outfitted. But now here's the third thing. Stand firm in the faith. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him, that is the devil, standing firm in the faith. Just stand firm in the faith and you're resisting him. And the God of all grace will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He will make you, he will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Now that's a promise, I think, to any of us who have somewhere along the line here just let our guard down for a moment. And we've experienced some advance of the enemy into our lives some influence of the devil beginning to affect our thinking or our behaving. And in that moment, some nudge from Numa has awakened us to our need and has re-energized us to once again resist that stuff and to take our stand for God's truth. And this renewed resistance, enabled by the Spirit of God himself, will cause Satan to flee. And so the truth is, as our final thought puts it, and here we are, the devil doesn't want a battle. He wants a meal. Refuse to become lion lunch. If you're ready for a war, he wants nothing to do with you. You're outfitted in the armor of God. You're submitted to your heavenly father. You're in a, you're in a garden of prayer consciousness all day long. 
He wants nothing to do with you. But be aware of his schemes because sometimes they slip through and we, we fail to recognize where that's coming from. Let the Holy Spirit sensitize you. Heavenly Father, we know we're in a spiritual warfare. But we also know you've outfitted us for it. You've given us the Holy Spirit who can allow us to walk right through this fallen world and, and be unscarred as far as our spiritual nature is concerned. And Father, it is our desire to be yours, to remain yours, to identify ourselves as your hope-filled people in this incredibly awkward and sinful and confusing world for so many. Father, thank you that confusion is not part of our life. You've told us what is so. You've told us what matters. You've told us what counts. And you've told us how to draw upon your great grace and mercy and strength and love. And we, we do so now. We give our lives entirely to your Holy Spirit that he might make your truth come alive and that he might build our will so strong that, that we step out following in the very footsteps of your Son. We ask you this now in his name. Amen.